It's been a long, long time coming, but Ottawa is entering into final talks to procure Lockheed Martin F-35 fighter jets. Could Vladimir Putin be ousted over his Ukraine invasion? And if so, how would that happen? We'll have that discussion. And we'll also find out about a meaning to Encanto. Right now, though, we're going to talk about uh, the announcement yesterday by the federal government that at long last, well, no, I mean, I'm, we can't even say uh, that they've gone and announced we'll be entering into a deal to get the F-35. There's negotiations continuing. We've identified a, a winning bid, but this is not a finalized contract. That's still down the road. Nonetheless, it is a major step forward in a process that has been one step forward, two steps back for a very, very, very long time. And to join us um, and talk our way through it, we have uh, David Paglazi, who's a reporter with the Ottawa Citizen and has covered this from day one. David, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Oh, great to be here. Thank you. This F-35 thing, I mean, uh, or, you know, just getting new planes, that goes back to, what, 2010, right? <laughs> I wrote my first F-35 story in 1997, so um, <laughs> that's when Canada uh, signed on uh, to the uh, research program, the development program for the F-35. Okay, and then, uh, so when we get to uh, announcements that, okay, we're going to replace our our fleet of, um, of fighter jets, and the F-35 enters the conversation, is that 2010? Um, approximately, yeah. I mean, um, the the Conservatives uh, under um, uh, Stephen Harper uh, committed to the aircraft, um, and then it went downhill from there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, let's just, it, it started with, okay, we're going to do it, and then if you get to 2015, 2016, the Prime Minister, Trudeau, stands up and says, you know what, we don't need F-35s, we're not going to get F-35s, we, we, we can do without them, right? Yeah, so what happened before Trudeau came along is um, there's a lot of problems with this aircraft. And so the Auditor General released a report in 2012 saying um, that DND, National Defense, was withholding key information about the fighter jet purchase from Parliament. You know, the parliamentary budget officer said the real cost of this is like $30 billion or 20, closer to $25 billion instead of $14 billion. So then Prime Minister Harper uh, started retreating a bit and uh, brought in a team to look at this and, and that type of thing. That takes us to the 2015 election where uh, Trudeau, as a liberal leader, said, we're not going to buy the F-35. Right. Okay. Now, so we've got the reversal. We're, we're, mm-hmm. we're back on F-35s. Why? What, what's changed over that length of time? So the the way the Liberals are spinning it is, uh, you know, take a look uh, at the 2015 statements from uh, Trudeau. He's very adamant they're not going to buy the F-35. No way. It's too expensive. Canada doesn't need stealth um, that this aircraft has. Uh, then in 2016, they change things a bit and say, well, we're going to have a competition. And then the F-35s allowed into that competition. The, the military has always wanted this aircraft. In 2005, they said it was the only aircraft that could meet Canada's requirements. That was at a time when there was only one F-35 operating. So they've always wanted this. This is the big, you know, the, the Cadillac, so to speak. Right, yeah. Now, the situation, obviously, in light of what's going on in Ukraine, that provides a window of opportunity, right? That that sort of changes the discussion around all of this. 
Well, that provides some public relations coverage. Yeah. So now, you know, the, the minister said, well, we need new fighter jets because, you know, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We need to defend, uh, you know, Kane airspace from Russia. Uh, we need to, you know, uh, contribute to NATO. Uh, no one mentions the fact that the giant Russian war machine <laughs> actually can't even handle an invasion of one country. So, I mean, that's that's another topic. Yeah. But, uh, but it, it does provide you know, some PR cover for sure. Um, Can we see this, I guess if we call it a window of opportunity, expanded into other areas of defense spending? We know there's new focus on that. Trudeau saying we'll meet our, you know, our uh, NATO obligation uh, of 2% of GDP. Do you think there's more of an appetite that they may capitalize on here? They're going to try for sure. So they've identified, uh, you know, improving NORAD, uh, uh, you know, upgrading the uh, the Arctic radars because of the, uh, the the Russian threat in the Arctic, um, uh, so-called Russian threat. Uh, so that's going to be anywhere from four billion to ten billion. Um, they've got a real problem with this Canadian surface combatant project, um, which is to replace the frigates. You know, it was started under Harper. The estimates were fourteen billion. It jumped up to $26 billion. Um, the parliamentary budget officer says now it's at $70 billion, and I'm starting to hear numbers like it could go up to $100 billion for 15 ships. I mean, the procurement is bleeding money, and that's, that is a major problem. Um, last one for you, and then I'll let you go. When we take a look at um, these F-35s, we're now the government very careful to say this is not a contract. I mean, how confident are you that this actually means this will lead to a long sought but never found deal? Yeah, I mean, what they're saying that uh, we're just in negotiations, uh, that's technically true, but it is uh, somewhat deceiving. Uh, they're going to have a con- they say they're going to have a contract by the end of the year. And um, uh, so I would imagine that 99.9% <laughs> they're going to have a contract with Lockheed Martin and the United States government. Um, if they don't, then there's a major problem that Lockheed Martin dropped the ball. So, yeah, this is, this is just... Uh, public relations. Top of your head, do you know the cost difference if we had just gone ahead and done this uh, initially and stuck with the original plan, what the cost increase is that we're looking at today? Well, it's it's difficult in the sense that uh, you know the DND said it was originally fourteen billion. Now they're saying nineteen billion. Yeah. Uh, you know the PBO uh, and Auditor General are saying thirty billion, twenty eight billion. No one knows the cost. And the major problem that we're going to the taxpayer is going to face in the coming years is the cost to maintain this aircraft it's extremely expensive every time you take it up in the air one hour will cost thirty thousand dollars us yes and that that's what no one's talking about now and so you know if we talk two years from now you and i will be talking about how the maintenance costs of the f-35 (laughs) are through the roof yeah but we knew it would be uh david thank you so much for your time i really appreciate the breakdown Great, thank you. You bet. That is David Paglazi, who is a defense reporter with Ottawa Citizen. And as he said, he wrote his first article on F-35s and Canada's involvement with the stealth fighter jet in 1997. All right, so we're seeing, uh, I'm going to call it glimmers of hope. And uh, I know we don't want to get carried away, and you don't want to uh, get too far down the road here, but um, there are talks underway. Uh, they're actually being hosted by Turkey. 
featuring Ukraine and Russia having discussions about maybe trying to come up with some sort of peaceful resolution. Well, not peaceful, obviously, at this point, but some sort of negotiated resolution to uh, what is going on. And um, both sides making some concessions, not huge. Uh, Europe saying they will scale back military activity around Kiev and another Ukrainian city. Um, Ukraine saying they will commit to neutrality and offer international um, observers to make sure that that happens uh, and negotiations around Crimea. So um, perhaps uh, a slight thawing in the situation. Will it be enough? We'll have to monitor it closely and see where it goes. In the meantime, though, Joe Biden got everyone worked up this weekend when he went off script during a speech on Ukraine, said something like, God, that guy can't remain in power, Biden said, referring to Vladimir Putin. Um, now, the White House has been trying to walk it back, saying there were no Official plans for regime change. That's not a U.S. position on this. Uh, Biden today saying, no, I'm not walking anything back. I meant what I said. I'm talking about the moral outrage. I'm not talking about official U.S. policy. This is how I feel personally. Now, it's never a good thing when a president wrongfoots his administration like that, going off the cuff. But in reality, if you think about it, how can Putin stay in power? How can this be resolved with Putin remaining in power in Russia? How does this thing end if he does? And if he is going to be ousted, how does that happen? To get some insight on that, we're going to chat now with uh, Lisa Sundstrom, who's a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Well, thank you for having me. So now Biden's saying no plan for regime change. Uh, There's no action inside Russia that we know of by any outside countries to try and remove Putin. Um, So if it's going to happen, it's likely to come from within. Um, do you think it's a possibility? I guess let's just start there. Um, is it possible that that's how this ends with Putin leaving power? Yeah, so I, I do think it's possible. It's always possible. And we get surprised by things all the time when authoritarian regimes collapse. But I would put it at sort of a a minor percentage probability, uh, less than 50% for sure. Uh, And the reason for that is that Putin has a very tight circle and a small circle of key advisors around him who themselves are unlikely, excuse me, themselves are unlikely to turn against him. But we are, on the other hand, as you said, there's sort of glimmers of hope if you hope for democracy in Russia and and into this war, uh, sort of outer circle people who are starting to, in small numbers, show displeasure and starting to defect from the regime. Okay. Um, Let's try and walk through a few of those things, because you're right. I mean, it's it's an interesting um, discussion to have. First of all, in terms of the citizenry, um, how likely is that? I mean, do Russian citizens, we know there's been massive efforts to try and limit what they know about what's going on. Do they even have a full understanding of what the situation is? No, for the most part. Uh, and, and that is one of the most difficult things about this. Probably a lot of your listeners have heard uh, kind of survey results, poll results in Russia that are showing again and again by different agencies that a majority of Russians approve of the government so-called military, special military operation in uh, Ukraine. Uh, And the fact is that most Russians are not getting any news outside of the official state-approved narrative 
on the war from official news sources because it's illegal to do so, basically, in Russia today. And the only people who are getting that are those who are going around it by using VPNs or actively seeking material on YouTube. Um, You have to actively search for it and put a lot of effort into it now, and it's only a small minority of Russians who are doing that right now. Um, So, uh, beyond the citizenry, you take a look at his inner circle. Um, Do we see any indications that there's someone within the inner, inner circle that's being honest with him and saying, you know what? You're going to have to try and find an exit strategy here, or are they still sort of propping him up? Is it, is it largely yes-men, or will he be hearing contradictory influence and opinion from his inner circle? Yeah, so in the inner circle, it's it's been narrowed and narrowed over time so that it's, it really consists of people who have political scientists and people in Russia call the Sulaviki, which are kind of the hardline, militarized um very, yeah, hardline sort of militaristic uh, parts of the regime from the security services, the military, um, intelligence, and so on. And those people, anybody who questions has been removed from the circle, okay. essentially. So if you see, if you if any of your listeners sort of watch these meetings that Putin has had with his National Security Council, for example, and his cabinet, you don't see anybody pushing back. And in fact, they're doing everything they can to avoid saying anything that would displease Putin. Um, so we, I don't think he's getting any um, direct opposition, challenge, alternative information. Um, the interesting thing that people have sort of been commenting on recently is that a few people have disappeared for periods of time. So it made a big, um, a big sort of amount of attention uh, internationally when the defense minister wasn't seen in public for almost two weeks, Sergei Shegu. He eventually returned again. Uh, the story was that he'd had a heart attack or he had some heart problems, but there was a lot of speculation in that time that he was either had been sidelined for giving uh, a negative spin and, and expressing reluctance about the mission, or that he himself was trying to keep his head sort of out of out of the way and out of public view so that he wouldn't have to stand up for an invasion that he disagreed with. Um, it's not clear, it's still not clear what went on there, but he has reappeared in public again, seems to be back on board with the team. Um, so, but things like that do make people start to wonder if there are some cracks in the edifice. Something to watch. Um, we know all the economic pressure, the financial sanctions, all of the trade embargoes, and, and you know the individuals that have been targeted, the oligarchs. Um, there's some hope that they'll be able to exert enough pressure on Putin to change the course of this. Any sign that that is happening? I know Abramovich is is part of the peace talks today in Turkey, mm-hmm. um, so he's still involved. He's still taking a leading role. But is he going to be a voice, or any of these guys going to be a voice, putting pressure on Putin to reverse course? Yeah, so there are a voice out there, and some of them are as sort of predicted because they're hurting economically very badly. Uh, they are starting to express disagreement with the war and distance themselves from it um, in small numbers. Um, and Abramovich is one of those people. He is on that negotiating team, mm-hmm. both unofficially and officially in certain 
points, that is sort of a hopeful sign to me that maybe, you know, he would have a way of getting into the conversation. And and as you said in your introduction, there are some signs that maybe there's a little bit of softening of yeah. the two sides' positions going on, which kind of surprises me, but if it's happening, that's fantastic. I think through that route, there's a possible impact. But the problem is with this autocracy that it's really dominated now by those military and security folks, not by the economic liberalizers. So not by the oligarchs, not by um, the head of the central bank, Elvira Nabulina, who apparently tried to quit and she wasn't allowed to quit. Um, So there are lots of people who are leaving from that sort of more liberal um, capitalist wing of, of, um, the powerful people in Russia, but they are no longer really the insiders who have Putin's ear, unfortunately. Hmm, interesting. Um, okay, to, to wrap up, with what Biden said, he has to be out of power. Um, personally, I mean, I'm no expert on this, but it seems to me like, yeah, that makes sense. Is there a way that Putin remains um, the leader of Russia and somehow this is resolved, or does Putin need to go? What happens to the sanctions if if they come to a resolution? Do those stay on Putin? I mean, is it about Putin or is it about the situation, do you think? Uh, so I think what you're asking in a way is, will the Russian people be hurting so and sort of power holders in the country, elites, be holding so, be so hurt by the sanctions that they'll force him out eventually? Um, you know, there's a way that this could end. <laughs> power, which is he gets some kind of a compromise peace deal, gets to spin it domestically as, see, we've completed our humanitarian mission, we've stopped the sort of so-called massacring of people in eastern Ukraine, of Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine, and he gets to come back home and save face. And most Russians will not have heard a different story, so they won't know. The sanctions, though, I mean, my understanding, based on, I mean, I don't think we've heard a a definite transparent plan on that, but my understanding is the sanctions would not go away right away. And and Russia's had a significant amount of sanctions already on it before the invasion uh, over over Crimea, but they weren't really stinging them. Uh, But I think uh, you're not going to see those sanctions drop immediately. You're not going to see, for example, companies immediately re-entering Russia. So I I think there are going to be problems (laughs) for a long time. And it's possible if people get information over time, uh, if enough people, once the crisis moment is over and the spotlight is off, start to withdraw their support of Putin at the elite level, yeah, it's possible over time it could all sting enough that some opposition force will manage to get organized and actually present a credible threat to his rule. It'd be interesting to watch. Lisa, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. No, thank you for having me. You bet. That is Lisa McIntosh Sundstrom, Professor of Political Science at the University of British Columbia. breakdown of the plot of Encanto. What happens here? Okay, so essentially she's like a little girl in a magical family. Yep. But she doesn't get she didn't get powers. Okay. But now this house and magical family is falling apart. Yes. And she has to try and fix it, essentially. And they move? 
What do you mean they move? Do they move? No. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure? No. No, it ends with a spoiler alert, but it, it ends with like she fixes the family because they're all just so stressed out and they're fighting with each other and the grandmother is putting so much pressure on them that to be perfect that they can't handle it. Yes. Okay. Yep. All right. Now, now, okay. This makes sense because that that's that's what I was told. Okay. Uh, now let's now let's find out. Maybe maybe Sarah missed some of the the deeper meanings of this movie. I don't know. We're going to chat now with Miriam Georges, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Political Studies. And Mama Whippowin, if I said that right, Indigenous Governance and Community-Based Research Space at the University of Manitoba. Miriam, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I think this is interesting, and I love the piece that you put together on this. Now, did, did our producer, Sarah, have it right? Does that, is that a fairly decent breakdown of the plot? A, a family with magical powers, the young girl doesn't get magical powers, but she sort of has to try and fix everything. Yeah, I would say I would agree with that. Did they move though? Isn't isn't there some uh, relocation in this movie too? Uh, no, there okay. is, from my perspective, healing and the house gets fixed. <laughs> now you bring a very unique perspective to this analysis, right? You're originally from Iraq, and a lot of the the themes in this film sort of struck a chord with you and seem very familiar, right? Absolutely. Yeah, um, I'm not trained in trauma. Um, my area of uh, research is displacement and violent dispossession uh, through colonial violence. But I bring firsthand experience, as you just said. I'm a Syrian. Uh, I'm indigenous to Iraq. So I was displaced. I lived as a refugee. I, write, I resettled here in Canada. Uh, I've been very active in the diaspora, the Syrian community, and sort of helped me see kind of and think through patterns that I see in uh, uh, migrants. And then I worked with refugees from uh, the Iraq invasion in 2003 in Ontario before doing my PhD in Alberta. So this movie really resonated with my life and with ways that my lived experiences actually really inform a lot of my scholarship. Okay, now this is interesting to me. Sarah, the things that she's talking about, these kinds of themes around immigration and trauma and things like that, did any of that hit your radar as you were watching the movie? Yeah, for sure. Oh, really? Okay. Because the family, like the grandmother and the grandfather were displaced from their home because there was some kind of attack. Gotcha. Okay, so there was, there was, there was migration involved here. Cass, did you, did you pick up on these themes as you were watching the movie? Or is this news to you? It was news to me. Okay. Yeah, see, that's the thing, and I think it d- depends on your sp- perspective. So, so Miriam, when you watched this, what resonated with you? What did you see that sort of made you go, oh, wait a minute, I, I recognize exactly what's going on here? Well, I think for me, um, it was really easy to pick out that in a movie such as this, that people might think Abuela is the, the matriarch figure, yep. is, you know, the villain. In the absence of what they thought, there was no villain, so they thought, you know, Abuela's kind of mean, she puts a lot of pressure on everyone in the family, and so she could very easily be the villain. But I really saw her not as a villain. I saw her as someone who had, um, you know, experienced uh, trauma from displacement. I think displacement is trauma from my own lived experience, and I could see so many of my family members in these characters. That's what resonated with me. I think we need to place her in that context of trauma to understand uh, why she was behaving, right? For example, people thought she was very mean to Mirabel, which is the protagonist who doesn't get magical powers in the family. But I think when you understand it from a trauma-informed lens in this movie, you see that Abuela sees these magical powers as survival. They helped her relocate and, you know, rebuild this community. 
And so she sees them at survival. And when Mirabel doesn't get a power, she thinks, oh, no, is is our survival in jeopardy here? Are we not going to be able to survive? What's coming next? Why are why are these gifts stopping? Because you have to remember they were using these gifts to, you know, build this community. She mm-hmm. wasn't a power-hungry villain. She was, you know, surviving. And I think she was stuck in that survival mode as so many migrants are because they never get the help that they need from this trauma they suffered. So for her, it's very scary to hear that this magical gift isn't in the young girl, but the young girl proving that maybe you don't need the magical gift in the new environment is sort of moving beyond that, I don't know what you want to call it, survival mode into the new reality? Or am I being overly simplistic here? No, I think I think that's exactly it. I think Mirabelle shows us throughout the entire movie that uh, she does have a gift. It just didn't come from that sir you know, that idea that we need these superpowers or these gifts. What her gift was is being able to move the family, to heal the family from, um, you know, this survival mode that they were kind of, they were all in. And she could do that because she hadn't suffered the trauma her abuela had, right? She was removed from that. um, And so she could do that kind of healing work. And also, you know, uh, she didn't get that pressure of a gift of having to live up to this, gift, you know, because I think the migrant experience is so much so that you leave everything behind. It's, uh, you leave everyone you know behind, everything you know behind, and you really have to make all of that sacrifice worthwhile. So there's this, you know, there's this desire to, you know, achieve perfection, make it all worthwhile, be, have a great life here. But she didn't, and we see that in kind of in all their powers, right? So they're all trying to live up to this pressure of being perfect uh, to maintain their survival. But I think Mirabel really shows that, you know, um, I think she shows that we can heal from this by first realizing that we um, can move beyond survival mode, that we need help to process this trauma, um, you know, and we need to acknowledge this historical uh, intergenerational trauma and we need to intervene here so that this trauma and this pain doesn't keep getting passed down. And I think Mirabel can do that, whereas Abuela couldn't because she hadn't processed her trauma. And obviously those parallels, as somebody who's lived that, you know, experience, not in obviously cartoon form, but in real life, and there's so many immigrant families that will recognize that this is the situation that we went through, and it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating parallel. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's why it meant so much to so many people. There is millions of refugees and displaced people and I think watching this movie, they didn't need to see Disney draw, you know, a villain, a cartoon villain, because they had they already know that villain, right? right? It is that violence, that colonialism, that imperialism that dispossesses them from their homes, you know? And so they find themselves in these new situations, and they're trying to deal with all of this pain and this hurt that keeps getting passed down if there's no intervention there, right, to heal from this. And so I think that's why it resonated with so many people who had already lived this experience and just kind of thought represented in film where they normally don't. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting perspective. And uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, chatting with us about it. Thank you so much for having me. It was thank really great. You. Yeah, you bet. That's Miriam uh, Georges. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.